Raphael. I'm Josh Rosenfield here with Soren Howe. We're talking about the season two finale of Deadwood, Boy the Earth Talks To, directed by Ed Bianchi, written by Ted Mann. Um, you were kind of alluding to me uh, after our last recording <laughs> that this was a uh, quite an episode. You did not undersell it. Uh, this is <laughs> quite an episode of television. Yeah, I figured this would uh, this would make you happy. So I again, just to be clear, um, in this this second part of our two part finale podcast, um, last uh, I liked the the last episode a lot um, for you know, the, the reasons discussed there mostly on like an emotional level. Um, but you just immediately see, see a difference in this episode, like from the first shots. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I really liked it, but I'm glad you, I'm glad you had the same, I mean, even it's an Ed Bianchi one, so I figured you would, you'd enjoy it, but it's also, it's got a lot of stuff that I knew you would, you would appreciate. And wow, does a lot of stuff happen in this episode. They really cram in like without making it feel like it's crammed in, um, you know, a lot of, important moments into one episode no yeah it always you know and again we'll do the synopsis first but it this season of deadwood is all taken every episode has kind of taken the same general setup of it's just kind of one day in the town mm. um not all consecutive days there's time in between but pretty much every episode i can think of is sort of started in the morning and ended in the evening some of them are even shorter than that sometimes it's just like just like the one with the um where uh, william is hurt i think is just one that's true, yeah. And actually, the next... that and the subsequent episode might be the same day. I think they are the same day. And, and the first, the first, the first two episodes are the same. Day, and the first two episodes are the same day. But yeah, so so it's either one day or like half a day. Um, but yeah, they're usually really contained. Um, but they cram so much in. Um, yeah, they did a good job in this episode of kind of sticking to that setup, but making it feel natural. How many, how how much of a season finale this is, and how many things happen. It's a season finale. It's also a, a setup, obviously for next season in a, in a lot of ways as well um the other thing uh the other thing about it is that it's um like for me i found the uh the thematically and i guess narratively it, it even more last to be honest last episode i think well, both of them were kind of work together, but they really tie off what we started in the first. So the first, you know, two episodes, we talked a lot about Martha. We talked a lot about the um, uh, the arrival of the the, the new prostitutes for the uh, the Shizami and all of these um, these new elements in the town. And obviously, we got sort of a tie off to that in some ways uh, when Wolcott kills uh, kills the women, uh, and then the rest are sent away. Um, but uh, with Maddie and all the rest of it. Uh, but here with Wolcott, which obviously is uh, an important moment, um, we can talk about how that whole scene is framed. Um, yeah. the, with the ending of, uh, of the Wolcott storyline, and even though it's sort of continuing with Hearst, it is like the end of that uh, that thread. Um, and and last episode we had sort of an end of the initial of of the of the arc between Martha and Seth. Obviously, they're still together, and there's still this that's going to continue, but the introduction of their characters and the awkwardness of the town of, of in the town, which of, of their marriage has been put to rest, I think. So, you know, with Alma getting married and with uh, the death of William, I think we see sort of a, a, a close to that uh, narrative arc of like the awkwardness of Seth having to deal with having a family here. Um, and then we also see a, an end to this arc around Wolcott and his, and his, um, his story. So I, I like that, even though Deadwood feels like it's absolutely continuing on, it doesn't feel like, well, now what are we, we going to, you know, 
watch or like what what's what you know what characters have anything to do now that uh wool cut's gone um it still feels like that's that's come to a natural end yeah it's 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 cool because there's some things in this episode that you would expect out of a season premiere almost and the Mm -hmm. main thing is the main thing is hearst like Mm -hmm. the arrival of hearst is the sort of thing you expect uh to be in the setup for a season you expect to see that in the first episode it's like all right this is how this season is going to like this is this uh, Wolcott I don't think showed up in the very first episode of this season no but his arrival was very much like all right this is one of the primary arcs of this season it was in new money which I think is the the third episode the third episode yeah yeah. well the first two were all about uh Seth and Al Mm -hmm. so it's that was sort of like the season's structured interestingly interestingly in that way because the first two episodes are all about sort of resolving this roiling tension between just these two characters. From last season. And it's, yeah, and exactly. It's almost like the denouement of season one more right. than it's the beginning of season two. And then episode three is more where season two really begins. Right, exactly. Exactly. And, but um, I think that this really is an end, even if it's a transition, it's, it's definitely an end to season um, two. And the other thing that makes it feel like a premiere, I think, is the fact that it's a week... You know, we talk about things being usually consecutively one day after the other for the most part. Um, and instead, this is a week jump. So a whole week's worth of things have happened while we were, you know, whatever, in the interstitial time between episodes, um, which is unusual, you know, unusual for Deadwood. Yeah, um, I guess let's jump into the synopsis. Sure. Uh, like you said, a lot of things happen, um, but I'll do my best. The first thing that happens, of course, is George Hurst arrives. Um, and I want to talk about later... As soon as we're done with the synopsis, I want to talk about how this is framed because it's really, really, really interesting to me his, how his arrival is framed. Mm. But yeah, he uh, gets off the coach and Al sees this and this is where the everything sort of launches off from here. Uh, Wu sneaks out of his room at the gym mm. and goes after Lee. One of Lee's men is killed by one of Wu's men and vice versa. And they're kind of about to go at it when Johnny sees, well, Johnny is walking by and sees this happen and he pulls Wu uh, back into the gym. Um, and then the rest of the episode is sort of focused, you know, that's one of the main thrusts of the episode is everything with Wu. And then the other main thrust is obviously the wedding of Ellsworth and Alma. Everyone's getting set up. Everyone's getting dressed. Everyone is, is preparing for this uh, celebration. And the ending of the episode sort of plays a lot of these, the conclusion of a lot of these different threads together, using the wedding as sort of a framing device. Mm-hmm. So, and there's also Hearst, right? There's also Hearst and, and I guess, and Walcott, mixed yeah. in with the, the Yankton, um, uh, Dakota uh, plotline as well, which also yeah, has so, come to a conclusion. So uh, Hearst goes to visit Al, and Al is very much his uh, playing a character self, trying to be manipulative without seeming manipulative. Mm. And Hearst is, it comes across in a really strange way. He's not the sort of, the way he's been looming over the town for this entire season in this very menacing, very threatening mm. way. He appe- The way he acts is very cordial. It's very um, unassuming. It's very... It's credulous uh, too. I mean, he he's yeah. he takes what Al says. Uh, we're going to talk about Hearst, uh, but yeah, because uh, yeah, I've uh, I have some thoughts about exactly what you're talking about. Uh, yeah. So uh, Al says, "Well, you know, Wu here, even though he's pretending like he hates Wu and he's a terrible person, he could give you uh, uh, Chinese people to work in your mines." 
And Hearst says, well, we would need to compare him to Mr. Lee, who's been very reliable to me. And, if, and this sets up what Al and Wu do later in the episode. Um, Hearst buys the Grand Central Hotel and Farnham has diarrhea and falls over on a stump and is generally acting ridiculous, but he does agree. Um, yeah, Hearst and Walcott. So as Hearst meets with Sai. Sai, it's, it's a very funny scene because Sai is basically trying to pull out interest from Hearst in what he's about to tell him. He's trying to get Hearst to ask him about what he wants to say. Mm-hmm. And eventually he just has to come out and say it, which is, you know, your man Wolcott killed three prostitutes and I had to bury the bodies. Um, and Hearst does not want to talk with him about this. And initially you kind of think maybe he doesn't care, but then he does go to Wolcott and confronts him about it. And Hearst says, well, we have to, we, I can't be connected with you anymore. You know, this is, uh, I, I can't believe that you, you know, uh, Wolcott brings up that previously he had had Hearst write a letter to the, to a Mexican police chief basically to cover for him. And that he says this was a similar situation. And Hearst claims he had no idea mm-hmm. uh, that that was possibly what was going on. And, you know. Who knows how true that is? We'll talk about it. But uh, Wolcott, he, he tells Wolcott, look, drop a, uh, a, a severance package that you think is fair. I won't object, but we're done. And the rest of the episode is sort of, uh, it follows this wedding and everything's sort of happening at once. One of the main things is um, Commissioner Jerry has brought this uh, final offer to Deadwood to Al and Al and uh, Silas are trying to kind of riddle out exactly what it means and exactly how they're going to respond. And eventually they do come to an agreement and they talk to Jerry with Seth and they come to final terms and there's going to be elections in Deadwood. As the wedding's happening, they're talking about this. And as the wedding's happening, also Wu is taking Dan and Silas and Johnny and they're dressed up as Chinese laborers with these weird mesh masks with mustaches on them. And they go and attack Lee and they and Wu slits his throat. Um, Sai tries to extort uh, Hearst mm-hmm. because he claims he has a letter of confession from Wolcott about what he did. But uh, it doesn't really matter because Wolcott hangs himself from the from his hotel window. Exactly. Which which I made a very loud exclamation at when that happened. Um, As everyone's dancing and celebrating the wedding in the thoroughfare, Cy comes over and starts berating uh, Andy Kramed for coming back to town. Mm -hmm. And Andy says, God is not mocked. And he stabs Cy in the stomach. (laughs) That's crazy how many things... (laughs) In the course of this episode yeah <laughs> it's it's wild um yeah then Wu returns to al and cuts off his ponytail and says Wu american um which I, i'm really excited to dig into that because wow yeah um no kidding and then there's this final moment where uh seth is leaving the gem and he spies alma across the thoroughfare and they share a look and it's sort of this look of like you know we, we've moved on mm. and and he leaves and Seth leaves and goes home. And that's where the, that's where we leave the season. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So the first thing I want to ask before we get into the, 
this episode is do you have different feelings about last week's episode now? Last week's episode whatever, feels a lot like the previous the previous episode. I don't really it, it definitely feels like prologue to this in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I think I prefer the kind of I, I prefer the fireworks of the finale to the to the table setting of last week. You know, we you, I get that you kind of have to do a lot of table setting to do something like this. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's, I don't really feel if I had watched them, uh, in closer proximity, I might feel differently and they might have sort of blended together for me in, in a, I don't think they blend together, way. but they, they do feel like two parts of a, you know, cause it requires, you know, the setup of, Wu. and also, again, I, I really think that there's this, this intentional contrast of the funeral with the wedding, right? Last week and this week, but, or sorry, I keep saying last week and this week. It's the same week. We're doing this as a two part. For us, it's the same week. Uh, last episode in this episode. Hey, look, if we've been watching it at the time, it would have been last week and this week, but uh, we didn't watch it as it aired. We watched it after the fact. So, um, yes, yeah, so it's between the last episode and this episode for me. It, it feels like thematically there's, it's meant to be joined as sort of a, yeah, like a night and day type of uh, thing. Although, ironically, then the wedding takes place uh, <laughs> at night and the, uh, the funeral took place in the day. But yeah, I mean, I think there's a, uh, for, anyway, that was, that's my take. I know that there are people who, uh, who are on my side about the funeral, um, even if we, uh, we we didn't quite agree on that. Um, so yeah, uh, Hearst or 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 Ed Bianchi's direction. I guess there's 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 that aspect. I mean, what what more can you say about Ed Bianchi's direction? He's just he, he knocks it out of the park every single time, and he does so this week. He does something interesting in this episode, which uh, he's done before but I think sort of sets him apart, which is he likes to frame characters within the frame. He'll frame them with the environment. So he'll sort of sequester them in one part of the image and they are mm. blocked off by walls or, or they're inside doorways or they're just otherwise sort of composed within the environment itself, not just with the camera. Um, and that's a really like, it's not a simple trick, but it is a very uh, clever and easy way to make into composition uh, a little more interesting to the eye and interesting to the brain. Yeah, just like I was thinking about, there's this one where um, Al and, and Jari are, are sitting across the table from each other, but Jari is locked by the door, um, and yeah. Al is framed by either side of these like this these this slatted door. Um, I guess in his uh, in his office, uh, you know, separating where his bedroom is from where his his office space is. Um, yeah, so that one stuck out to me. And the other one that it, it isn't, well, it's kind of like that, is this amazing, I mean, it's my favorite shot in the episode for sure, is uh, this amazing shot of Jari and uh, Blazanov from the beginning. Yes, that was fantastic. That was so cool. So he has these two planes, right, the, the foreground and I guess it's yeah. the background. They're both in focus. And the the posing is amazing. I mean, it really looks like they're posed in such a way that it feels like how you might draw these characters if you were trying to capture the moment, um, you know, like almost like, uh, 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 you know, like a classical painting might, might look like this. Right. And then you get um, uh, like a Norman Rockwell or something. And then uh, uh, Jari's asleep and he, and he's sort of slouched over to the side. He wakes up, leaves the front the 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 um the foreground and enters the background to stand behind Blazanov uh and he sort of poses behind uh Blazanov like with you know sort of standing to the side and it just looks it, the whole scene just looks so cool and literally nothing's happening here happening here except for 
news is coming in via telegram, right? There's nothing communicated other than that. So it's not like this is some momentous scene, but it's just so cool. And in, ta- in terms of splitting things up, because Jari is sitting in front of half of the doorway, um, he and that there's a door behind him, he's separated in the image from Blazanov, who's in the background, who's in the on the right-hand side of the frame. So you have the left hand and the right hand, and then in the very, very, fr- like, right in front of the eyes and out of focus are, like, you know, it looks like bedposts or some sort of, like, grating. Um, so, like, everything's sort of, your eyes are, like, drawn directly to the center of the frame where these two characters are, where they're sort of sitting next to each other, but they're not because, again, one is sitting much further back than the other. And the whole thing is just, I, I don't know, I, I just thought that scene was so cool. I rewatched it a few times just because I was... It was just so immediately different than last episode. It's a great shot. It plays with depth yeah. in a way that you don't see on TV a lot. Like there is so, uh, there is there is depth to this image. You see, you have the uh, Jerry in the foreground and Blazanov in the background, but they're also angled so that, like you say, Jerry is facing straight on the camera and um, Blazanov is in side profile. So it gives the image that sort of dimensionality where it's sort of pulling in two different, it's pulling toward the camera Mm. toward us, but also on a horizontal plane. Um, really, really cool setup. And yeah, for his, for a scene that means nothing for a shot that is, you know, is, is really just an establishing shot for a character who's about to leave and go somewhere else. It's, it's what director of television would put that much effort into that image it's just mind blow. Like he's just so good. He's so good. <laughs> and my favorite shot in this episode was actually Martha and Seth. Uh, again, it's just like he'll. It's it's he's. I, I'm I'm gushing. I'm really am. <laughs> but he'll he'll just throw away a brilliant composition. And it's at the very end of this scene early on when they're talking about how Martha still wants to teach the the children of Deadwood because she thinks it'll keep her close to the to William's memory. And it just cuts to the behind them. And they are, they're both sitting down and they're holding hands and the light from the window is shining on them and there's sort of darkness behind them. And it just communicates so much about where these characters are at emotionally. It's a beautiful shot and it's it's there for like two seconds and then the scene cuts to something completely different. And it's just, oh my God, I, I was like, I think I said something out loud when, when I saw that shot because, wow. Yeah, so the the other thing I was uh I was thinking about was how your um how you were sort of reading Al's interactions with Wu last episode and cuz I I think the um this is this is less of a cinematographic sort of thing, but it is um there is some striking imagery with Wu this episode, particularly with his hair. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Both, both in the beginning and at the end. Um, and I think that, uh, I, I love this whole sequence of him escaping um, from, and you get the, you know, you, you're again, cause it's a week later and it takes you, well, it took me a minute to figure out that it had a week had passed until they start making it clearer later on. Um, so Wu has been basically trapped at the, at the gym waiting for his moment to escape and exact, and he plot out basically his revenge on Lee. Um, and there's this really sad, like distressing moment where he's just f- completely distressed by Lee and, and what's going on, um, uh, you know, in his community. 
and uh, yeah so anyway it was how did you how, how were you feeling about the the wooly uh, uh plot line at this point well I'm, I'm glad you brought up the hair because i i did take note of this so the first thing we see is in when he's confronting lee he takes out his ponytail and lets his hair down loose yeah and it's almost i read it as almost this moment of like um it's like a hold my earrings moment of like i'm coming at you i'm taking my hair down like you know i'm not no bullshit uh like I'm, I'm coming for you. And, but then he throws down the knife at Lee's feet. So it's, it's a contradictory moment in that way, but it is, the, the, it is. The hair, yeah. It's, yeah, a, go, sorry, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of like a, um, it's almost like it. I'm tired. Like I'm tired of, of, of fighting with you over this. Like, why is, why, why is this happening? You know, it, 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 you do get the impression from Wu that he's not that he doesn't know what's going on in that sense, but he's kind of confused by why you know there's this interloper who seems to be backed by yet more unknown forces who is who are just like disrupting things and he i think again we're sort of reading into it because we don't have again unfortunately not given so much information about Wu and and, um and the, the chinese folks in the camp but there's this impression that like the chinese folks sort of stick together and this new character has sort of come in and is very clearly Operate. Now, of course, Wu is often working with Al, but I think he reserves a certain amount of, or he feels like he reserves a certain amount of autonomy, and he feels like maybe he feels like Lee isn't, uh, or he's representing some other interest and isn't in, interested in the. And I think that's why he's distressed about the burning of the bodies, right? Which we saw last episode. It's 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 a disregard for the culture. It's a disregard for the you know. It's I'm not. You're not. You're Chinese, but you're not Chinese. And by the way, the actor who plays Lee is not Chinese. Uh, I think he's Korean. Oh. Um, but okay. Anyway, um, but anyway, you're. I think he's supposed to be Chinese. I think he's for five seconds. For the two seconds, he says something in Chinese in this episode, um, uh, and then we'll never hear anything else from him again. I guess. Um, but it's this disrespect for the. It's like he's um, almost assimilated too much, um, which is ironic given what happens towards the end of the episode. Um, but I think that that's his big issue with Lee is that he's he's operating against the interests of their common sort of cultural purpose in the camp. Um, you know, at, at, at the end of the day, it's them versus, you know, the, these white folks. Uh, and Lee just has absolutely no conception of that whatsoever. And in fact, that's a point made later on when he is sleeping with a white prostitute, not one of the Asian prostitutes that they brought in. That's so interesting that you read it that way, because when we think about, what what else the hair represents in this episode? The next thing that happens with the hair is when Al is meeting with Hurst and he's he's pretending to be furious with Wu. He's yanking him mm-hmm. around by the ponytail. Mm-hmm. He's grabbing it and he's almost like he's it's almost like a leash on an animal. Um, so I, when Wu cuts off the ponytail at the end of the episode and says Wu American, mm-hmm. I think that that to me is almost him saying to Al like I'm not less than you anymore. I'm one of you. I'm like you. I'm part of I'm part of this country. I'm part of this camp. It is but. no, it def- I think that is enti- absolutely what that's meant to be. I'm trying to connect these threads. I'm not sure exactly if, in case people listening can't tell, I'm not sure how these things connect. But it does feel like maybe he wants to in a different way than like he wants to work with or assimilate or whatever in a different way than Lee did, or maybe he sees that he has to do what Lee did in order to remain a part of the power structures which is even more depressing if that's the case. Um, and that's sort of the conclusion. I think that's probably true. Yeah, maybe that's I think it. that is, I think that's absolutely probably true. He has and to I re- think literally replace Lee, not just 
in in position with Hearst, but also or with you know through Al, um, but also you know in terms of his own identity. Yeah, yeah. And Lee does have you know short hair. Yeah. Um, not that you have to have, have long hair per se for it to be sort of authentic, but uh, oh no, yeah. but certainly like the ponytail is definitely representative of Wu's ties to his own his own culture. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it is kind of depressing where Wu ends this episode, and it's funny because it's he he presents it as very triumphant. Like I have won, and I I have won out. I have defeated this interloper, and I am an American, mm-hmm. and he kind of rejects it's this rejection of it's it's like he has to reject like you say he has to reject being chinese in order to be respected in this in this world Mm -hmm. he has to leave that behind in order to be an american whereas today of course we would say well you can be a chinese american and you don't have to abandon you know you don't have to abandon your cultural heritage to be called an american like that's not those two things are not in conflict in any way but of course, at, in this time, he, yeah, he has to assimilate. He has to leave behind the culture he comes from to be considered American. You know, he'll never be considered white, but in order to gain some, whatever modicum of respect he can from these people, this is what he has to do. I actually think, um, I, I agree, um, but I think that the, uh, with the, with your point about Wu, but I think it's in terms of reflecting, I think it's a rebuke of American um, identity in this, in, you know, in this scene that, uh, in order for him, you know, it's, it's, it's a, um, it's a sort of a, a pastiche of, uh, you know, the melting pot that like, this is what we mean when, you know, you, you know, in your, in, in, you know, the show seems to be saying in your ideal world, everyone sort of retains their identity, but actually they have to reject it in order to be American. I think it's actually, and it's not meant to be targeted at people in 18, whatever 76 or whatever this this show takes place um it, it's meant to be targeting you know 2007 or to the, you know 2019 whatever saying you know this is you know w- we claim that these things can be um uh can be compatible these identities can be compatible and and that the american identity is like that um but even in the freest of the free places you could ever be in the wild west that was beyond the law and all the rest of it you know, Wu can't survive, you know, maintaining his own culture. It can't, it can't, it can't be done. And it's, it's not to say that that's a good thing. It's to say that that's a, that's something we should push back against, but to say that that's not the way things are. It's not the way things were, and it's not the way things are now. And things need to, you know, so, you know, it's, it's certainly something to maybe sort of push for. I think the show doesn't go quite that far to say that that's a, um, you know, something, it doesn't make any statements about what we should be doing, but it does sort of mock the idea of our, um, of what we would, what we sort of idealize as the the way you know Americanness sort of as an identity is and manifests for immigrants. No, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a major theme of this show is is what it means to be un-American, and and not in a very uh, corny, uh, obvious way that a lot of shows or movies that take on that theme sort of engage in. Or it's it's just insufferable. It's 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 almost backgrounded, but it is definitely a, a part of the show. Um, well, the show the show is is constantly mocking you know fundamental American uh, uh, ideals like uh, rugged individualism, right? You know, rugged individualism is you 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 die, right? You you like the the, the yeah. show is this is nothing you know unlike say a John Wayne film or or Sergio Leone or uh, whatever, right? This is not glamorizing 
the West. <laughs> There's nothing glamorous about living in Deadwood at all. Um, even the glamorous people who come to Deadwood are then muddied or their husbands are killed or, you know, uh, you know, they end up dead themselves or whatever. Like there's no way to survive Deadwood or come out and not be, you know, end up covered in, 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 in dirt. And I think that that's sort of a rebuke of this, like this pristine, you know, gunslinging West where everyone sort of just, um, where, you know, you can make it if you're, if you're tough enough kind of thing. Like that's not really how it is. Yeah. No. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, in and one of the other things that likes to critique ab about America is capitalism, and I'm just going to transition into talking about George Hurst <laughs> here. Yep. Sure. I love the way he's introduced because the way he's introduced this character, who, like I said, has been the town has been in his shadow all season. He has just been this dark, malevolent cloud uh, looming over the town. He is introduced in a wide, wide shot. Mm -hmm. He gets out of the he's carriage. He's just some guy. He's just some guy getting off the coach. And it's from Al's perspective. It's from, it's from, a, it's a high angle shot. It's from Al's perspective on the balcony. Mm -hmm. It's a wide shot. It's just, if you didn't, if you weren't, I mean, it's obvious if you're watching the show like that, obviously that's who this is because we knew he was coming in a week. Uh, and, I, and I, having seen the show, and one of the few things I still remember <laughs> about season three is that that is, in fact, um, uh, Gerald McGraney, who does, in fact, play uh, Hearst. And by the way, also played Tusk on House of Cards, another uh, billionaire industrialist character. So uh, he likes to play these kinds of guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. Um, but yeah, he, he's, he is, and I think it speaks to the way they establish his character as being very almost unassuming and not... Uh, throwing his he throws his weight around and he throws his wealth around but he is not domineering he is not overbearing mm. he's not very threat he's not a threatening person the way that sai you spend a single second with him and he's just growling and and uh getting in your face and and, and he's threatening your life you know instantly he is just not that kind of person at all he's and, also not even like wolka really exactly yeah like wolka is not the way that not in the same way that Sai is, but he's, he is a very threatening, very intimidating person. Mm. George Hurst is not an intimidating person. He is only intimidating by reputation. And that's what I find so interesting about this characterization of him is his reputation follows him around. It's almost like his reputation is his shadow behind him. Just like, you know, you can't look at him and not see it, but he himself does not put that off. It's just what follows him. I think, I think there's also this funny uh, aspect of the show. You know, you remember when Wilcott showed up and people started to realize who he represented and there was that whole back and forth with him and um, Cy or him and uh, Farnham and all these other characters. Um, and people really, you know, sort of stepped out of the way for Wilcott. By this point, Cy has just had it, you know, enough of Wilcott and finds him to be despicable and awful and and he's just he's not he's not in any way interested in serving that uh serving wolka at the very least if not hearst um but it, when hearst shows up he just you know all of the deference he had for wolka on behalf of hearst by the time hearst shows up because wolka sort of burned all that goodwill uh hearst is like just some guy to, to sigh and he's like yeah whatever i just want my money <laughs> and i want <laughs> you know whatever and and it's just so, the contrast between uh i think it was new money where Wilkins shows up versus when Hearst shows up is just night and day. Like it's just nothing. There's no similarity there whatsoever because 
again of how Wolcott has been seen and has uh, uh, treated other people in the camp and or you know people he's murdered and things like that. It's just led to you know this disillusionment almost with the um, the money that Hearst represents or the power. Yeah, exactly. Well, like guys like Wolcott have to be intimidating, right? Because, or they have to, they, I should say they don't because they have the weight of Hearst behind them. Mm-hmm. Whereas someone like Sai or someone like Al, who doesn't possess the kind of financial power, the kind of economic uh, status that Hearst does, they have to be, they have to act tough. They have to be tough. Mm-hmm. They have to, they have to radiate uh, toughness in a way that Hearst doesn't have to. Like he is way past the point of needing to seem scary because he just automatically seems scary. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly the case. And, and well, yeah, but then there's, it's sort of undercut by the way, um, you know, Hearst comes across in this episode. Uh, yeah. Well, anyway, I, this is something you wanted to talk about um, and then I'll, I'll throw my two cents in. Um, well, yeah, I mean, just, yeah, just the way he, I think we can read, we end up being able to read a lot about Hearst from the, from what Wolka does at the end of this episode, which is, uh, hang himself Mm. very public, very publicly, by the way, he does not like tie it around one of the beams of the room he's in. He hangs himself out the window. Mm -hmm. Um, he makes a show of it. And I think it says a lot about who Hearst is that he is not, he seems almost overly generous to Wolcott. He says, he does not say, uh, you disgust me, get out of my sight, I never want to work with you again. He says, well, you know, we obviously can't work together anymore, but I'll, you know, any severance you think is appropriate, I won't argue with you. And and this upsets, just him saying that upset, upsets Wolcott enough uh, to drive him to suicide. And we know that Wolcott is not the most, like, emotionally stable person, obviously, so there is that we have to factor in, but I think it says something about what Hearst represents just across the country, that Wolcott losing this job basically means, like, it's over for me. If, I can, if I'm not working for Hearst anymore, I'm, I'm done. If, Her, if George Hearst has fired me, that's it. Well, now, see, it's interesting you say that. Um, I think there's an implication here that Wolcott is, uh, that is part of it, I'm sure, but I think the bigger thing is that Wolcott and I haven't quite puzzled this out yet but Wolcott clearly you know there's a couple episodes ago where he puts the his razor blade to his throat right he's been I think thinking about killing himself for a while but has put that to the side because he had a job he had something to sort of do um, to maybe prepare for Hearst's visit and it's not that he can't get employment afterwards but maybe it's being forced to deal with his actions He's literally crying when he's being, when he's talking about what he did. I mean, which is something we've never seen Wolcott do. Um, he's literally tearing up. Uh, he can't handle the the situation. And, you know, it could be that he's just anticipating being fired or he's being, but I mean, to me, it feels like he's being forced to face what he did. And the person who had sort of given him license or who, who he thought had given him license to do what he wanted is saying, actually, no, what you did was wrong, and I can't be associated with it. And for whatever role Hearst plays for him as a father figure, as an enabler, whatever, that was sort of what, that was sort of the life raft that Wolka was hanging on to. 
And at once that was gone, I think he just had no, there was no buffer between him and the horrible things he had done. And I think he, that sort of caught up to him. Anyway, that, that, that seemed to be how I read it. I think you're probably right. And I think it's, you know, we have this moment where he, where we get the episode's title, where he talks about how, uh, oh, yeah. the Native Americans told Hearst <laughs> that the earth, you're the boy the earth talks, your boy the earth talks to. The earth talks to you and it shows you where the color is. Well, this is how the earth talks to me. This is what it says to me, that there is no sin. And what an, oh my God, what an incredible line. Because mm. like that, it's like finally, finally after this whole season, we have gotten to the heart of what Wolcott is all about. And what Wolcott is all about is basically, you know, God has spoken to me and told me that it doesn't matter what I do, that there is some sort of like divine or, or, or not even divine, but like he talks, he says it comes from the earth, that it comes from like a very grounded reality, that just the reality he lives in says that it doesn't matter if he does something wrong. And it's, it's so, I love that we get that moment and I love that that's the ending of Wolcott is that we get to the heart of who he is as a person and just him confronting that or saying it out loud and being rejected, like you say, is enough to put him over the edge. And I think he, he the other reason he's upset by it is that he, he puts this comparison in place and Hearst is like, uh, that's not the same thing at all. We are yeah. not the same. And I think that Wolcott probably saw some sort of, well, we're only just learning this, so it's hard to know how sincere it is, but he seemed to think that there was some kinship between him and Hearst on whatever level, especially or specifically in the case of his, you know, violent predilections, which is weird, but, you know, we don't know enough about Hearst to know what, you know, Hearst's deal is. Um, he doesn't strike us as like the murdery type, but of course Hearst, uh, uh, Wilka didn't show up trying to you know, murdering people in the street either. Uh, it took time for that to sort of come out. So we don't really know much about Hearst, but there is this sort of implication that he, he felt like they were, um, you know, fellows in this, in this, you know, in getting messages from, uh, or in, 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 uh, in some other, uh, entity giving them, um, uh, sort of controlling their instinct. Um, and for Hearst, that <laughs> yields gold for Wolcott. Apparently that was murdering hapless women, which, I don't see how those two things are related either. Hearst, you know, agrees with this analysis, but, um, uh, but Wolcott for some reason sees this being, you know, this, this, some, this, there's a parallel there. And, uh, uh, obviously this rejection, it doesn't sit well with him. Um, but yeah, I, I think that there's a really funny angle to Hearst in the way he's portrayed in this episode and about this. So first of all, of course, the, you know, appropriating, you know, this story, which who the hell knows if it's true, right? About how that's what the Indians call me. Like, okay, but do you actually know any, <laughs> do you actually know any Indians, Georgers? Or have you just like appropriated a bunch of land um, from these, like from these folks? So, so there's that sort of, you know, oh, uh, you know, I'm just one of the, I'm just, you know, I'm part of the community. I'm part of, the, you know, I'm, I'm a sympathetic sort of compassionate person. Um, and also I'm a boy, which makes me sort of innocent. I'm not like a man. I'm the boy the earth talks to. And I'm also, I'm ignorant to all the things, you know, I've had all of, I've had Lee, who's a, seems like a sociopath and Wolcott, 
who seems like a sociopath, <laughs> working for me and just clearing the way. But I don't know what's going on. So, like, he wants to play this sort of boy king who doesn't know what's going on. And, and it's not, you know, so he's created a mythology around himself that he's he's a, some sort of special genius who can get, who can find uh, 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 gold deposits. And also, you know, he's he's too innocent to to know what's going on in order to clear the way for him and it's this i think a very clear indictment of of that type of that ceo type character uh, or or person personality that is uh prevalent in the uh you know it's the, the eccentric billionaire character right yeah and and it's i mean maybe this is where we should launch into just talking about hearst as a commentary on the american system because yes. hearst as we think of like the hearst dynasty it is a dynasty. Mm-hmm. It is a it is a multi generational legacy of tremendous of obscene wealth that has lasted to today. And we're looking at the beginning of it, and it's this guy who really, you know, he he did start from nothing. He he started uh, just having to look after the rest of his family after his dad died, and he went to California to find gold. And he found gold, and he found a lot of gold, and he kept finding gold, and he just built out and built out and built out. So he is this example of like, this is what obviously this is not this is not the way the country actually works, but this is the kind of person who people will point to and say, "See, like you can make it in America if you try." But the way Hearst presents himself is almost like he's embarrassed. And the, what he says in this episode is, I don't, I've never known why I'm so lucky. And the way he oh, says yeah. it is lucky. Like, yeah, exactly. Is with this sense of like shame. Like he, like, I look, I don't know why I'm so incredible at finding, at mining. I, I don't know what gift I, like I have some gift. I, I won't apologize for it, but I just, I don't know where it comes from. Um, but he specifically uses the word lucky. Um, and it is so counter to the way that a guy like George Hurst is so often presented in American culture as a story of hard-working success. Mm. He doesn't say, I worked hard to get here. He says, I was lucky. Well, I mean, it's it's this great... First of all, you don't need to... like It's, it's not like a, um, you have to stitch together some sort of complicated um, uh, uh, background to explain why this is absolute nonsense. We've seen an entire season of what Hearst has been doing in order to be lucky, which is send his goons into a place where there's already gold, con everybody out of their uh, claims, and take their gold from them. That's not luck, and that's not finding gold. That's just going to places where gold already is. What that implies is that he found gold once and then has turned that into hiring people to go and take gold from people who already have found it over and over and over again and to murder his way through it. Those things. Oh, I don't know how that works. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You have no idea what's going on. Sure. 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 Well, um, I'm, and I'm talking about the way he's presenting himself, right? Like, obviously we've seen the season. No, I completely. It's just like, it's funny. Cause it's like, it, it's what I'm trying to get at is that when he says lucky, we're meant in my view as an audience, we're meant to immediately recognize how unbelievably delusional that comment is if he believes it himself and if it's if it's not it's just you know propaganda that he's communicating it's, it's his own personal mythology again i'm lucky i was born with this innate talent to find gold oh come on 
you know, like mm-hmm. I don't know who it's, you know, it's it's to convince the shareholders, it's to convince the 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 uh, to to build his reputation, but it's all fictional, right? It's all you know, and we know it's fictional immediately because we know what he did to get Deadwood into his pocket, right? We've seen it. Yeah, well, it goes to this this unassuming character he's putting on in this episode. Mm. Even though we have not seen him act otherwise, I think we have to assume that to some extent this is a character that he's putting on. Mm. You know what I mean? Of this kind of like, you know, not meek, but very mild and very mild-mannered. And very like, like I keep saying, unassuming. He is not a threatening figure. He does not act like that. And he acts like he has this gift and he acts like he's so lucky. But as you say... Where is his wealth really coming from? It's just buying out claims uh, to his own profit. Mm-hmm. It's it's it is it is not just buying out claims, but doing so under violent and uh, threatening circumstances. Yep. That's who this guy is. So when he arrives in town and he is acting like this guy who is like, well, I don't know, you know, my chief geologist is murdering people. What do I know? Yeah. And you you get the impression he would say the same thing about the violence we saw at the claim a couple episodes ago. It's like, well, what do I, what do I know about that? It's just I'm I'm just the guy in charge. That's I'm so distant from all that. And we how many times do we hear this from CEOs of corporations today? Like, well, I don't really know what's going on at the lower levels. You know, I just hire people and I don't I don't make every decision. I'm not aware of everything that's going on. Oh yeah. Um we hear that constantly today as a way of people covering their asses for the decisions that they are ultimately responsible for or going out of the way to stop people from you know they're like well i don't know about the you know uh peeing in bottles but uh i don't think a union is the way to solve it yeah exactly (laughs) and you know by the way we should we should definitely mention that uh when i say that he was just trying to support his family on this small farm his he had slaves like that was it was slaves on working on that farm (laughs) Let's not let's not kid ourselves. Yeah, let's it was, it was all slaves. Um, but yeah, I mean, so so so, what do you think of uh, of uh, Gerald McRaney's Hearst uh, 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 portrayal? I, I mean, it's, are you excited for to see more of it? I really am. I, I'm excited to see more dimensions of him. But for just for this introductory episode, I think he's made a fascinating choice to play Hearst this way. And the way that they've written Hearst is all is just as fascinating. But the way he is portraying this character in a way completely contrary to what we ha- would have expected from him is a really cool decision. And I think, yeah, I'm so really excited to see where he takes it. Yeah, for sure. I think uh, it, we're... we're you know spoiler alert, we're gonna get a lot more hearse next season <laughs> and uh yeah so you'll you'll get your wish we'll be able to see a lot more of him um as for how that plays out uh we'll just have to wait and see um yeah and then uh yeah i guess the 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 other main well first of all let's just say this one bit about about jari which is that um uh, and we we can talk about i guess the, the details of this but it's really not all that relevant the point is that officially Deadwood has signed on to become a part of the Dakotas, which of course we know eventually becomes part of South Dakota. Um, and that they're going to have elections and that the, one of the conditions is you have to be a resident for two weeks uh, in the town, but that's about it. And they want to have them as quickly as possible. That's really the main points. Um, the other main point of this being that uh, uh Silas Adams was very worried that he was not going to be part of the inner crew because he was sort of duped by Isringhausen. Um, but clearly Hal sees him as valuable both as muscle and as a brain. He had him uh, 
stick around to, to mess with Jari. Last uh, episode, or a couple episodes ago, two episodes ago maybe, um, he had him go out and uh, and deal with the Lee situation, and he, he helped on drafting this letter back to, to Yankton. So, you know, there's, there is that a- a aspect of it, and, and it's, I think it's clearly meant to be, you know, emphasized that, that Adams is very pleased about being very close to Al in a way that even Dan isn't because Dan is not a great mind. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but anyway, so yes, uh, but the main point is that, uh, that, that Deadwood is now part of the, or will be, I don't know when, how that sort of timeline works, but will be part of the Dakota, which is significant. Yeah, and you know, we'll. I, I have to assume that next season will kind of there will be some drama based around the elections. Um, I'm really excited. Presumably, two things. Presumably, sheriff will be a position up for election because that tends to be how these things go. So that'll be uh, that'll be a curious situation with Seth. Um, I'm really excited to see. Ob- very obviously, the position of mayor <laughs> will be up for election. And Farnham, um, I am I am so excited to see how he handles that situation because Farnham, you know, you t- we talked about in the past how in real life Farnham was elected mayor of Deadwood. He was a well liked person. Yeah. Uh, that is not the case on this show. So I I am I am very interested to see how Farnham handles his his ch- cherished position of mayor being up for debate and up for choice by everyone in town. Uh, none of whom like him. I mean, I so not that uh, uh, not to preempt uh, season three, which we'll come back to again. Um, I'll mention this thing at the end, but after we we finish with Game of Thrones, um, we'll be back for for Deadwood season three. But uh, the first episode of season three is called "Tell Your God to Be Ready for Blood." So, going just off the title, not going off anything else. Um, if it is about an election. Sounds like it doesn't go very well. If it's about anything else, also sounds like it doesn't go very well. Um, but yeah, so it looks like a lot of violence in store. <laughs> yeah. In uh, in Deadwood. Um, but yes, I agree. So yeah, we'll see how far. I, I don't know. Is sheriff an elected position? That uh, that I'm not sure about. But it might. It, it might is in some. I think it is right. Like it. I don't know. I I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Maybe not in every town, but I've definitely seen like sheriff be, being an elected position. Mm. Oh, that's depressing. Imagine if Joe Arpaio was uh, actually elected as the sheriff. Yeah, in it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a bleak world we live in, isn't it? It is incredibly bleak. Um, anyway, off of, off of uh, modern <laughs> times, um, because we still have sheriffs, still a thing, still a thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I would say the main, uh, the main event of this episode is the wedding. The wedding is so. I, I'm, I'm not sure that. Yeah, I'm not sure there's a lot to talk about with just the content oh, of the wedding. come on, there's so much to talk about. <laughs> I mean, okay, I, I think, first of all, I'll just say I think it's really cute when uh, Ellsworth goes to, to complain to Saul about the gloves that the tailor's given him. He calls them mittens. He doesn't even call them gloves. <laughs> Lavender mittens. And he says, he says, they're the rigor in New York City, whatever the, I think he says whatever the fuck that means. Yeah, it's really good. <laughs> Um, and then he ends up, he's like, really, he's, he's being petulant about it. And then yet he is actually wearing them. It's so sweet. Ellsworth's such a sweetie. <laughs> um, and then the tailor rushes up to him at the end of the episode and is like, was, was I right about the gloves? Yeah. Was I right about the gloves? <laughs> um, yeah. And, and by the way, so, so two things about the, uh, the movie, um, is that, uh, so you can, you, 
the spoiler you mentioned to me after one of the previous episodes um, was that you saw that uh, uh, Alma was uh, referred to as, uh, I guess it was Alma Ellsworth. Is that what you yeah. saw? Um, so, well, there's, there's the spoiler. I mean, it, I knew it would be coming soon, so it wasn't much of a spoiler. Um <laughs> Except for that, you know, you know, the, the proposal will be accepted, etc. Um, and the other thing is that the movie is about the incorporation of, or is about the anniversary of the incorporation of Deadwood as part of the Dakotas. So, I mean, again, something we already know. Um, at least that's my understanding. And that's as much as I know about the, the, the movie, just to be clear. Um, and I saw the, even the teaser doesn't tell you anything at all. Um, but I think that's what it's, it, the idea is that it's sort of a, a reunion of the people who sort of, helped found a town which became like an actual town. Um, it wasn't just a, a camp. Um, but anyway, yes. So Ellsworth and the wedding, and it's all uh, it's all very sweet. And there's this there's so there's a couple of um, uh, voice over type uh, sequences in this episode. Yeah. One is with Alma talking about. Uh, I think she's well. We never actually see her at the grave, but she seems to be going to see her late husband Brom Garrett. Obram, um, mm-hmm. the dude, um, and uh, yeah, and she's talking about how we get again. There's a lot of things put into actual words in this season that we don't have to guess at. Which is that she says, you know, she thinks she could be happy with Ellsworth, who's a good man, um, and the man she loves is also in camp, which mm-hmm. is Seth. So mm-hmm. it makes it very clear that she's. So again, this is what I was trying to get at last episode: is that there is this lingering sort of question even though it's you know sort of been put to one side of of you know how much are they actually invested in this marriage and there's also her question of personal freedom and agency and you know she's she kind of had a little bit of independence briefly and now she's sort of sighing it away again and she has a real hard time getting through those parts of the vows even if she's kind of happy afterwards during the wedding celebrations and everything she actually genuinely seems like she's happy um, but she just finds it really hard to get through the obey and serve and whatever. Else yeah, to say. very interesting break when she says I do and she is preempt the words specific words she has preempted by saying I do are worth mentioning because when it's it's when he gets to the part about obeying mm. and specific and, and loving specifically that she has kind of tried to skip over. But what she says to Brahms grave there's one line she says where she's I'm af- she says I am afraid that my life is living me soon it will be over and not a moment of it will have been my own and again we talk about lines that just kind of get to the soul of a character mm. like really kind of cutting to the quick with Alma that's what Alma is that's what her whole arc has been about is this idea that from the moment she arrived in camp her life has been out of her control and she has tried to reassert that control over the course of especially this season but here now comes another moment where she feels like she is you know, she can see herself being happy with Ellsworth, but in another sense, she doesn't really have a choice in the matter. This is something that she kind of just has to do. Right. And, yeah, and her frustration with that, of feeling like she has no agency, she has no control, the way she puts it, like, she, that my life is living me. Um, that's really sad. And I, I, I have I have hope that, that Alma will... Not have to feel that way next season, but I guess we'll see. Yeah, it's it's a question of whether or not this we, this marriage will, in a way, free her up, uh, and you know, to some degree, because you know, it's sort of it's sort of like you know, sort of marriage is a convenience where you you get into the marriage 
so that people stop asking you questions or you, for legal reasons, whatever. Um, even if both parties are aware that they're only in the marriage for the sake of whatever the whatever the reason is they got, they got married, not not love. Um, and so you can sort of relax that, for example, somebody can look after the kid or kids, that there will be somebody else there, uh, somebody else there to um, help Almo after she gives birth, because remember, she is pregnant. Um, that, uh, uh, you know, because Sophia is going to need someone to, to take care of her. And, you know, she can't ask Richardson to do it even though she probably would if uh ellsworth wasn't around um <laughs> and so you know it's it, it does in many ways actually free her up and ellsworth uh is is um i mean she's certainly got the the means to to live on her own but you know ellsworth uh is is like a actual working person in his own right and i think that there's this this sense that you know she can sort of relax a bit and let ellsworth take over and, and handle things if she wants um, and maybe she will have a little bit more freedom in a way. Um, in another way, she's now sort of bound herself yet again to another person and another loveless marriage, which she does worry about, you know, in previous episodes. Um, I don't know what's going to mean for her. Um, and, and you know what? The other freedom is being free of, you know, now there's a double whammy, right? So you have this uh, this funeral for William that I think, um, like I said, I feel like is sort of a, you know, that's a black wedding for uh, Martha and Seth. And then um, uh, you have this real wedding between uh, Alma and uh, Ellsworth, which uh, sort of is like a double wall, a double barrier against uh, Seth and Alma ever getting back together. And maybe she can sort of rest easy in that, that, you know, as as much as she loves him, she's now got real societal barriers in place that prevent them from ever getting back together and maybe she can you know use that as a means of sort of escaping from that uh sort of uh, emotional whirlpool well speaking of walls and and this wedding uh i the key moment to oh, me yeah. maybe of the entire episode <laughs> uh is right as the vows are wrapping up everyone hears this banging and it cuts to hearst who is in an upstairs room as the wedding is happening with a sledgehammer taking down one of the walls. Oh, yeah. And to me, again, you know, I haven't seen any more of this show. That seems like very clear foreshadowing of what the dynamic is going to be, where we have this moment where everyone in town is together and celebrating, and there is a sense of unity, and there's Hearst, who is literally tearing it all down. Yep. Like you could not come up with a clearer well, metaphor. It's it's uh, even more. It's even more over. Well, first of all, let's just the first part of the. Uh, we're, we're skipping around a lot, but the the other part of the 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 um, voiceover, uh, or, or I guess as they're doing the wedding vows, there's a lot of different uh, scenes that are shown. Um, yeah, in this. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one of them is becoming part of the Dakotas, sort of the marriage of Deadwood to yeah, the to the, con- to, yep. the to the to the country to states the territories etc um but yes i agree but in this scene where he's breaking down the wall you also have farnham literally rolling around in a pile of money <laughs> which is funny but it's also it's the means by which hearst was able to do what he did and i think mm-hmm. it's this very clear like hearst can get what he wants by basically bribing his way through which of course we know that's how he works but it sort of foreshadows the way he's going to bulldoze the town you know, or whatever it is yep. he's going to do, it will be through throwing heaps of money at people. Um, and that will be the sort of the, the, the death knell of the town as we know it. 
if that's the way everything goes. Um, you know, the question remains, is someone going to stop Hearst? Is there going to be, you know, some sort of opposing force? Um, and by the way, can I just go back to this idea of, we, we've, uh, we've talked about it, and of course it's something every Deadwood fan in the universe has talked about a thousand times. Um, but I think it is important to just bring this up in, the, in this context, right? So last, I, I really think in the first season, Al is sort of portrayed as almost a villain character to Seth's character, right? Uh, good and bad and whatever. But by this point, it's very clearly Al and Seth and like the real you know members. It's size and ambiguous character, but the, the many of the the other ones are are uh, you know he's almost like a scab, like a traitor to the town. Um, but you have a uh, uh, or a lone agent, I guess, because he is sort of trying to get money out of them. But um, you have Al and Seth and and Merrick and all these characters acting as a bulwark against these outside forces. And now, you know, Wolcott was definitely the, uh, the the villain of season two. And season three, I guess the implication is that Hearst is going to be that villain. Um, so Al has definitely transitioned into much more of a protagonist kind of role, despite the fact that he's, again, literally a pimp. <laughs> literally mm -hmm. a, this horrible human being. Um, but he's definitely pivoted into this sort of uh, this uh, anchor for, for the town. And uh, I think that if, you know, speaking of people who might stop, the, the way I came out of this, speaking of people who would stop Hearst, I guess it would be Al and, and, and maybe Seth. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I like that you bring up this, I, this juxtaposition of these two marriages. Um, because, yeah, it is, again, this is an example of Deadwood's editing being very obvious, but also, like, yeah, that's, of course, that's what you do. That's good editing. That's, <laughs> of course, that's, you make that, you make that connection through editing. That's what a good filmmaker would do. Or, and I, you know, whoever, whatever, whomever made that decision, you, who knows with TV or any movie, it doesn't matter. Um, it's a good decision. It's a smart decision. It, the, it's, you know, it's, I, I cannot take for granted how good Deadwood is as a work of art like I, every week, whether it's something that's kind of astonishes me or just something that is so simple and obvious. And yet they, they just do it because it's good. It's just, but you know what, do you know what's, you know, what makes it good is that it simplifies what has been quite a confusing plot line. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, like the Jari stuff and everything, like the, 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 um, the bluffs and the back and forth, you know, I've reviewed, I've had to go back and like review transcripts of what was said in episodes because it's, you know, I can follow it generally speaking, you know, certainly in like just regular dialogue. But when you're trying to come up with like these plans and how are we going to convince this group and that group to do this and it becomes quite uh, complex, let's just say. Um, and what this scene does is, and ironically in this scene, there are no words. It is all, well, there's words, but not we don't hear what they're talking about um, in this negotiation. We see the back and forth and no, I can't sign this, whatever, but we don't hear any of it. And it simplifies everything to literally this agreement between these, these, these parties. Um, and to communicate the fundamental message, if you understood nothing else about what was going on with Deadwood and its incorporation as part of the Dakotas, now you understand that's what's happening. That's the punchline. Whatever else happened this season, that's where we were headed now you know you know that's what's good about it is that it for me anyway is that it distills the entire season's the back and forth negotiations about this into just a simple sort of visual montage yeah i completely agree with you it's uh it's 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 smart filmmaking that's that's all you can say about it it's smart filmmaking mm-hmm
Um, the other, uh, one of the things I want to talk about was, uh, well, I just wanted to mention that um, Merrick has no lines in this episode, but is very Merrick. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, Every time you see him in the background, like not failing to take a picture or whatever, it's it's always funny. It is. And, and it's very, it, what I loved about this is as the wedding starts, of course, he's at the wedding. Uh, of course, Bullock is conspicuously absent, you know, jumps at the chance to not be there. Um but uh, uh, Merrick is immediately crying. And you're like, of course he's crying. Uh, <laughs> later on, he's getting felt up by one of the prostitutes as he's trying to take a picture. And there's a great shot of him uh, just completely... Uh, uh, oh, what's the word? What's the term I'm looking for? What is it? I can't help you. I have no idea. Anyway. I, I don't know if there's a word for There that. is a word. Oh, there's a word. I, I can't it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Point is, is that he's just completely <laughs> horrified by this. Um, certainly, we've never seen him, you know, wander into the, any of the saloons looking for uh, uh, any uh, services or anything of that sort. So he's just kind of um, baffled by this uh, this encounter. And again, he has no lines to this. But it's just like that. The again, the, the the people in this camp feel in the, in the show feel like they live in Deadwood for real. Uh, I hope when we go back, you know, 12 years later or whatever, they'll feel like they've never really left. But there's this idea that, like, there's this recurring idea of, like, you know, these characters are living there, and so they will react as they would because they are real people, um, even though, of course, they're not. And so Merrick, of course, has to be Merrick in the background, even if he's not really a part of this episode at all. And I like that because, it, it, you know, again, it's, it makes Deadwood feel real. Yeah, I completely agree with you. It's, again, this example of just... You know, we talk a lot about we talked a lot in season one about how the set feels like a real place. It doesn't really feel like a set uh, just just because of not even because of the way it looks, but just because of the way it's shot. It just it's shot in such a way that uh, everything feels like it has a very concrete place in relation to everything else. Um, everything we see from the gem's balcony probably being the best example. We have such a clear idea of where that location is in relation to the rest of town. And it's, yeah, yeah, it feels like a real place. Scandalized. Scandalized. I see what you mean. Yep. God damn Sure. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, scandalized. Um, yeah, uh, that, and then uh, we have uh, uh, two characters in dresses this episode who don't usually wear dresses as well. Um, we have uh, Jane and Trixie. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Both wearing uh, dresses and the... Uh, uh, Trixie at uh, at Saul's behest, and uh, Jane. It's not really clear. Joni Joni seems to convince her that she can't wear the same thing to a funeral and to a wedding. Because, more superstitions, yeah. Because uh, yeah, more superstitions because Jane always wears the same thing. Um, which of course Jane wore things to funerals in the past, right? That she because it was the same outfit. She never changes. <laughs> just, maybe doesn't even bathe. Um, and so it's not clear if it's a superstition or if it's uh, Joni. Uh, just wants to put her in a dress, or it's not. Who knows? Who knows what the reason is? But um, uh, I like I like how the uh, I like how Jane sort of interacts with some of the other characters in this in this wedding scene. She's there. She looks very uncomfortable in a dress. She doesn't seem to like dresses, which fair enough. Um, and she immediately punches a guy out for she thinks looking at him. I, I don't even know if he's looking at her, but she, she punches him out anyway. Um, but she still dances. She's still having a good time. Uh, and there's a there's a great moment uh, when um, uh, when the music uh, stops, uh, 
and Jane, you hear Jane, mm-hmm. you don't see her, you just hear Jane's voice saying, hey, we ain't done fucking dancing. <laughs> and then they start up the music again. Um, and so she's just very, uh, you know, into the festivities. And it's nice to see the camp uh, mostly on the same page, except for, of course, uh, Wolken and Sai, uh, who both have quite the, uh, the experience. Well, you know, I, I would like to talk about Sai now. Um <laughs> I'm glad you brought because I think this is the time to do it. Sure. And I, I I think just to go off of what you said, this is, like I said, a moment of like unity for the camp and almost a moment of like it's a moment of celebration, but almost kind of a moment of, of triumph. It's this moment where everyone is kind of in this, you know, people kind of run through and say elections are coming. And that's also a moment of celebration for everyone it just adds on to it. It's a moment where just 99 percent of the characters are happy. And even Seth at the very end seems, you know content in with his relationship with Alma and maybe Alma's not, but Mm. we'll kind of see where that goes. But Seth, I felt seemed kind of at peace. Um, and added on to this sort of happy atmosphere is the fact that Wolcott, who has been a very villainous, vicious character is gone. He's dead. Literally. He killed himself. He's dead. He's out of the picture. Um, and that's kind of ghoulish to consider that part of this happy, atmosphere is that a character has killed himself but of course for the, us we, nobody else knows this has happened but yeah for us it's, it's that's yeah. true but yeah just in terms of the tone of the ending mm-hmm. right um but then we have this moment where sai who is not a who is not an a hateable you know you, know, you don't hate sai you don't feel like i can't wait for sai to get what's coming to him no um, I, I mean i'm, I'm less uh, empathetic towards he's him not than a, i am to like al no no yeah. I, i'm not i am not i i do not <laughs> I am not empathetic. I'm not sympathetic to Sai in any way, but he is not a character where it's like, like Walcott where you're like, I can't wait to, for things mm. to finally catch up with Sai Tolliver. Like, mm. no, like, he's just kind of there and he's, he's, you know, he's fun in his menacing way. Um, so for, you know, we talked last time about being a little confused with uh, Kramed uh, showing up at the Bell Union. And being kind of awkward and... Seeming yeah. to... Just to harass Sai, really, and just to kind of uh, annoy him, pretty much. Um, it... This... What he does to Sai definitely, to me, seems premeditated. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's a minister I who think is he's carrying... to do this for some time. He's carrying around this enormous knife for... For surely only one purpose... Uh, you can't think of many reasons oh, a minister yeah, yeah. would need a weapon that big. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, it's definitely a, an attempted murder. Or, and he yeah. de- as soon as he sees Sai, he just walks over and says, God will not be mocked. You First of all, he says, God will not be mocked, you son of a bitch, yep. which is not language you expect from a minister. No. And he and the He's way it's no Reverend the way it's, Smith, let me tell you. No. <laughs> the way it's presented is so cool because it's not in that typical way of like the normal way you would shoot the scene where you kind of see the muscles move. Yeah. Um, and you see Sai react. There's no reaction. You do not see this movement happen. I he actually just walks had, to re- up to I had to rewind it. Um, you don't even, there's not even a sound cue. I'm pretty sure it, there is no sound effect. It felt like, it's, um, it felt like, uh, Assassin's Creed or something, you know, it's, it kind of does. Uh, it is very smooth maybe an and just, <laughs> maybe he's an assassin. Uh, they should, they should do a wild west. One of those games. That could be fun. They kind of did the frontier or something with Assassin's Creed 3. They did the revolutionary war. Oh yeah, uh, yeah I guess was, was that game was bad. They've been all been doing like antiquity, like ancient times. Mm. Like, come on, <laughs> I don't know. I, I have I have opinions about the Assassin's Creed franchise, but we'll we'll save that for another for another time. time. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but yeah, the way it's 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 yeah. There's no sound effect. There's no sign that this has happened, except that you see him 
walk away with this bloody knife, and then you realize, oh my god, and it cuts to Sai's stomach as which is gushing blood. Oh yep. And it's you know this show for an HBO show does not relish in violence. It does not revel in blood and guts and the act of killing in a way that a lot of its contemporaries do. Well, I, I want to uh, specifically talk about that because I think that's a really relevant point. But it just in this stabbing scene, there's also this great moment where Joni just tells someone to look after Sai. Like she seems completely blasé about this situation. Yeah. Um, and Jane, so like last episode, so again, so many parallels in last episode. Last episode, we had Joni sort of admiring Jane's caretaking, caregiving sort of uh, persona because it's not her usual thing, but um, it's admirable. And here, Jane's just staring at Joni as she says this because she's like, I, it, it seem, I mean, who knows what she's thinking, but it feels like she's admiring how calmly and how um, self-assured uh, Joni is in this moment of panic, uh, theoretical panic uh, over what's just happened to Sai. Um and uh, yeah, I just I liked I liked that little that little moment uh, of uh, of Jane's admiration. Um, but yeah, I agree. There's not. I mean, we've talked about in the past. There's a lot of um, you know there are moments of like pools of blood and there's the gleat if you remember the gleat um, and people's throats getting slit and all sorts of stuff. Um, but you know, not to to dredge up uh, Game of Thrones again, but just to quickly mention because we talked about Woolcut as like a comparison to to. Ramsey Bolton, who is, for those of you who don't watch Game of Thrones, he's like this sadistic character from Game of Thrones, and I won't get into his arc and how it ends, um, except for that it is interminable. Um, <laughs> but uh, the main point is that to compare, think about just for a moment how Wilcut's death scene happens versus how Ram. I won't even say what happens to Ramsey Bolton, but how his arc ends. You know. It is so quick with Wilcott. It's so fast. It's not gratuitous at all. They don't sort of do what you did to him. And, and, you know, in fairness, I mean, I guess what Ramsey does to people is very different than Wilcott does. Like, Wilcott is, like, very quick and kills people. But in, like, horrible, you know, mutilating sort of horrible ways, right? Uh, and they don't, like, do that to him to, like, end his arc. It's just he kills himself, and that's it. You know? And I think that... Um, the show could have done a, you know, a vengeance moment where Joni kills Wolcott, or you could have done something where someone does something, you know, Joni could have become quite, you know, sadistic, or somebody could have been, you know, really, or Charlie or some character. Uh, and they just don't go that route at all. They're just like, no, this character just dies for whatever the reason is. You know, they could have had someone kill him. Even if they had someone kill him, but like quickly, it would have been better than Game of, what Game of Thrones often does, right? It's like, it doesn't need to be this weird, like, like torture porn, right? It doesn't have to do that in order to give us the satisfaction of his death. No, absolutely. And 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 like I said, a lot of HBO, a lot of just prestige television, and, and I'm going to sound like such a Puritan, I should say. <laughs> I love, no, listen, this is very important. I love violence in movies. I love violence in television. I think it's awesome. I think it can be very cool and fun. You know, I, I'm, I'm, as soon as tickets for John Wick 3 go on sale, I'm going to be right there first in line uh i am not i am not a puritan when it comes to violence but i do think there is something very cruel and sadistic and just gross about the way that a lot of prestige television treats violence in a very uh lascivious way in a very almost lustful way and you know it's a gross thing to consider but it just there is a it feels like 
there are just there's this obsession with yeah, it's the like, depiction of blood and gore. It's exploitative. Um, it, 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 that's the word I'm looking for. It is absolutely exploitative, and it doesn't have to be. Like you can have violence and even extreme violence that doesn't feel exploitative if it feels like it's to a purpose even if that purpose is just to make you look at it and say damn that was cool like that can be <laughs> all it is whereas in you know in a lot of prestige television it's often just to sort of shock and disgust and i'm not sure how valuable that is if you're doing it over and over and over again um whereas like you say the what happens to wolcott is not just very quick it happens almost off screen it, Almost off screen, in the middle of another scene. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's yeah, it's almost like a jump scare moment. Um, it's just you know, Mo, uh, Doc Cochran and, and Mo's Manual are doing. He's gotten him off off of the bench, and he's doing showing him how to do these stretches. And Mo's Manual is doing these stretches, and then just in the background, Wolcott's body flops down, hanging from a noose. And we you don't can't even know even it's tell, him. Yeah, we can't even tell it's him at first. It's not till we see him discovered later. And even when we see him discovered later hanging, it's a wide shot. Yep. And he has to turn around. He's spinning and we around. we barely see him, yeah. We barely see his face. It is not indulging in the shock of this, of this violent act. It is not uh, so obsessed with the gratuitous detail of it. It, it is actually just... focuses a lot more on his hat. Yeah. Right? That's the thing that they focus on. Um, they're like the hat. You remember whose hat this is? Oh, it, it it's Wolcott. Oh, <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> and then it cuts away. Um, exactly. It's just completely different than how, again, certain other shows would handle it. Um, so yeah, I really like that. So, but you were, you were talking about the 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 lack of gore, but like I, for me, that's the obviously we have a scene of of, of Sai getting stabbed, and that seems like an obvious and end of end of Lee getting his throat cut. Like this is this show is not wanting for. Gratuitous gore. Heck yeah, but three, th- well, two deaths and then one, you know, I, I don't know if Sai's going to die, but like one, um, uh, you know, potential, at least attempted murder. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and yet, you know, there was less, less sort of ogling at that in this episode than, you know, in far less in, in other shows. So yeah, I, I, I really appreciated that. Um, and yeah, and I, just to reemphasize your point is that, you know, there's the Roger Ebert, you know, sort of a, a feeling about, Violence, not to say that he wouldn't watch anything with violence, certainly like plenty of movies like Alien or whatever. Um, but I think I remember it was his review of The Raid or something. He just starts off and he's like, I don't like violence, so let me just say that right out of the gate before we talk about how much I didn't like The Raid. <laughs> and it's like, well, you know, fair enough. Uh, at least you stated your, your biases up front. Um, that's not that's not your feeling. That's not my feeling. Um, it, it really comes down to how it's used, like anything else. Uh, and uh, um, I think... Yeah, I think the show does a, a really good job of, of uh, using it appropriately. And certainly, there's not like someone dying every episode, and there's not a lot of gore there. Um, but when it does happen, it's it's made very clear, um, and uh, it made clear in a sense that we know what happens without having to necessarily uh, languish in the uh, in the uh, carnage. Um, even in the scene where Wolka kills a bunch of people, I mean, as much as that was hard to watch and, and horrible. Um, it was, again, still a far cry from some of the other things we've seen. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think that's that's most uh, most of what's what's what happens. There's a great there's a great shot of um, sort of just a bunch of characters smiling and enjoying the uh, the scene at the end, um, and uh, even Al seems happy, mm-hmm. which is I think how that 
the how the, the episode ends. Yeah, um, it is. It's I think it ends on Al. Ends on Al smiling, um, and it's just, I think did last season also end in the thoroughfare? I think there's like a, a thing of that in the show if I remember correctly, but I could, I could be wrong. Um. Yeah, I don't remember how last season ends. It's possible. Well, in any case, I like that you know it sort of ends with this whole town coming together, and and uh, it does it does set a really positive note from last episode, which was, from me anyway, quite quite a downer. Um, uh, this sort of is is sort of like if that's the valley, this is sort of it's coming back up to towards a peak. Now, of course, again, I said next uh, next season starts with an episode about uh, that implies uh, some some heavy violence or some sort of conflict. So clearly, that's going to be disrupted that uphill climb um uh especially as Hearst starts making waves in the town but you know at least for now we can enjoy the fact that the show ended on a great note and we can just uh, you know rest easy in that until we come back to, <laughs> to season three dogs for you. <laughs> um yeah was there anything else you wanted to say about the episode no i, was I just think it ended on a positive it. note but you know yeah a positive note except for one uh <laughs> you know less positive uh, bit, but overall, which is which is what? Wait, Sai getting stabbed? Sai getting stabbed? Oh yeah, well yeah, for sure. But I mean, because Sai again sort of hits this neutral territory of being kind of a horrible human being uh, in many ways, in most ways I would say. Um, you know, his concern with the prostitutes dying wasn't really. I mean, obviously he's sort of semi disgusted by the situation. It's not something he would do. Um, and his his jockeying for position with. Uh, with uh, Hurst as sort of the new Wolcott was also kind of an interesting move. But of, and of course, now he needs a new Wolcott, but he doesn't need someone who's going to try and blackmail him. So we'll see how that, that sort of pans out. But um, yeah, I mean, it seems to be just like, it's it's the way he can use things to his advantage. He doesn't seem to really care for people. Um, although, you know, he does have some feelings for, for Joni, clearly. It's just that he exhibits them in a possible way. Um, <laughs> so anyway, so him getting stabbed. Not... I like Sai. Sai, <laughs> I know. I like terrible person, but I, I, I would miss him if he was gone. Sure. Yes. Yes. And uh, uh, Powers Booth does does bring a character to life. So, um, so yeah. Uh, next season, uh, we'll see what we'll see what Hearst gets up to, and uh, and the, what is the the next? Yeah. Tell your God to be ready for blood. So we'll we'll be back with season three, episode one, uh, in. Seven weeks, Se- I guess. Seven, eight weeks, seven weeks, eight weeks. I don't know how long Game of Thrones is going to be, but anyway. I think it's only six episodes, yeah. In the meantime, uh, as we said before, please do check out uh, Star Contrast, which we are going to get right back into. Um, to For those of you who haven't heard this already, I'll just quickly say that you can listen all the way back to season four of Game of Thrones. We've been covering this goddamn show for. It's been going on for a long time. Um <laughs> At the time, it was game. It wasn't even called Star Contrast. It was called whatever Game of Thrones podcast movie fail or something. Um, <laughs> and uh, we didn't have a real microphone, so apologies for that. But anyway, you can jump in wherever you'd like to whatever you know. If you'd like to jump in when we actually have microphones, sometime around season five or season six, that's when we start getting really rolling. Um, I think it's season five. It's probably when we start calling it Star Contrast. I think we got microphones. I think so. Yeah, and that's also when the show is really bad. So we were having some fun conversations. Oh, yeah. There was a lot of ups and downs, let's put it that way. Um, but Hard Home also happens in season five. So, That's true. Know, um, Miguel Sapochnik. Yeah, there you He's go. He's always there for us. There you go. Um, you know, they had these directors from Deadwood just hanging around, and they didn't get them to, I mean, come on. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, anyway, so uh, so we'll, we'll be covering Game of Thrones. Um, 
we don't just cover bad things about Game of Thrones. We cover good things, good things about Game of Thrones. We like uh, when things are good. Uh, it, it doesn't bring anyone any pleasure when we don't like stuff like that's not helpful. Listen, we are going to be very fair to Game of Thrones. I promise. <laughs> we are. We're coming in kind of hot because uh, last because the last season. Because if anybody watched last season, come on. Um, <laughs> but, but we are going to uh, give it our our best shot. And we had a year sort of as a palate cleanser. I honestly don't remember anything. I don't know any of the characters' names. Who's the uh, who's the the main one? Oh, there isn't one, right? All right. So, um, anyway, <laughs> Game of Thrones, uh, Star Contrast, check it out. Uh, we'll be back with Deadwood, and then the movie, which I'm so excited to. Watch. I can't even tell you. The more I watch Deadwood, the more pumped I'm getting for this movie. I can't believe I'm gonna have to be dodging spoiler. I'm gonna have to put in so many mute terms on Twitter. I'm gonna have to mute every character name. It's gonna be a every... pain in the ass. It's gonna be a pain in the ass for you. And like just seeing the teaser, I'm like, oh god, you got it. You got it. You've, you've nailed it. I don't I mean, I don't know, <laughs> but I, it seems like they got it. All right. Um, and I think that's because David Milch has just slipped right back into form. Um, and then after Deadwood, the movie, uh, we got to talk about what we're going to do next. So if you, any of you have any ideas out there, please do let us know. We'd, we'd, we'd love to have ideas for future shows to cover because we will be done with Deadwood and uh, we'll be done with Game of Thrones. And uh, there'll be a lot of open space for us to start exploring new things. Could be movies. Could be TV, could be both. Let's see. But mm-hmm. until then, uh, yeah. Thanks for thanks for joining us uh, for Deadwood season two. Thank you very much.